Chapter 5 of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter 5 1888 Lethbridge. On April the 30th, 1888, my 40th birthday, the Turkey Track so was the narrow-gauge railway known, from the Canadian Pacific took me into Lethbridge, a village of about 500 or 600 people, many of them miners, a place where I was destined to spend 14 happy years thenceforward. There my boys and girls grew up into men and women, and when the inevitable time of parting came, we were all sorry to sever our connection with the people we liked so much, and among whom we had lived so long. There was in those days a camaraderie about life in the Northwest, which is entirely lacking now, and life was a great deal more worth living. Live and let live was the principle upon which we conducted our business. We constituted a little oasis in a desert, and were as happy a little community as one could find on the broad prairies. I looked back with great pleasure upon our theatrical entertainments, which were given always for a local charity and also upon little time of stress when our Church of England parson was laid up with a bad throat. I waited for him after the service one day and said, I will read the lessons for you if it will be a relief. It will be a great help, he said, and I did so for one Sunday. Then I said, Better give yourself a chance. Let me read the prayers and you preach the sermon. I shall be so glad if you will, said he. The arrangement continued for a while but the poor chap had to give it up and go to a milder climate. So it was my lot to keep the church doors open and continue the service until a parson could be procured to take the job. In later years, when business had become more progressive and remunerative, and we had to find maintenance for a parson or to dispense with him altogether, a young Englishman was allocated to our parish and asked me to be his church warden this was an honour which i had theretofore studiously declined but at last i gave way it was a case of the self-supporting rectorship at last and the question before the vestry was the stipend which we could guarantee to pay twelve hundred dollars a year was the irreducible minimum and i said that i thought we ought to be able to guarantee that much the people's warden at this juncture was one j h cavanagh and he disagreed with me there were not too many old-timers of that day left in the land of the living now, but such as are in the flesh will endorse what I say about him later on. At the vestry meeting I said, I will find out what it is possible to do and report at the next meeting. All my exertions in the interim showed that we could not, in addition to church expenses, guarantee $1,200 a year to the rector. As a government official, independent of business considerations, I was the only person in the community who could try the experiment of securing offers of monetary assistance. I admitted quite frankly to Kavanagh that he knew more about it than I did. He was a successful businessman in a small way, that is to say, he ran a very reputable grocery, etc. store, of which the stock was paid for before he began to retail it, and he was a man of sterling character. At the time of the miners' lockout, he was Grand Master of the Ancient Order of the United Workmen of Manitoba and the Northwest Territories. 
and I was master of the local Masonic Lodge, number 22. We had a good many ideas in common, and I often used to drop into his shop for a chat. He had a philanthropic disposition, and his death was a distinct loss. Almost the last I knew of him was in 1902, when I returned to Lethbridge from the customs roundup described in future pages. No sooner had I reached home than I was called to the telephone. This is J. H. Cavanaugh. You were elected worshipful master at the last meeting, and old Fred Campness is in hospital, like to die. There is not much time to lose if you want to see him. I kicked off at once to the hospital to see the old chap, whose only expression was, I am so tired. And I left him with the impression that I had better lose no time in memorizing the Masonic ritual for the dead. It was well I did so, for three days later it fell to my lot, as the first act of my assumption of office, to lay to rest a worthy old brother Mason, who had been in Australia and New Zealand before coming to Canada, and whom, at the request of the Customs Department, I had nominated as local assistant collector of customs at Regina in 1885. It was after I left Lethbridge in 1902 that Kavanaugh was seized with appendicitis and died from it. Dr. Mewborn, who attended and operated on him, is a graduate of the McGill University of Montreal. He is the fifth of his family in the medical line, and he has for years been known as the first surgeon in the West. What he has done for me and my family I could not adequately tell. We had the benefit of unremitting care and attention and up-to-date skill, for the little man, as I speak of him to mutual friends and acquaintances, was nothing if not up-to-date, although we lived in a little oasis at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. I remember so well the beginning of our acquaintance. Mewburn was the only medical man in the place. Naturally, it would not have supported two and was both the acting assistant surgeon of mounted police and medical officer to the mining establishment for our part we had on the bank of the belly river a small building which had been erected as a hospital this was about half a mile from the centre of the village and contained room for two or three beds a small kitchen accommodation for the hospital orderly and a very limited surgery it was obviously inconvenient to send every man who had a trivial complaint to attend the hospital parade at such a distance from the barracks, and within a few months of my arrival the hospital conveniences were brought within the four walls of the wire fencing, enclosing our barracks. But that little hospital on the bank of the river, while it lasted, answered Dr. Mewburn's purpose to the full. A chance Indian came to him one day, accompanied by a good many of his relations, and asked if any relief was possible. This case, if my memory serves me correctly, was that of a bad goiter, and the little man thought he could relieve that condition, with this proviso, as he put it to the patient and his assembled relatives, I think I can do good, but I shall have to make a big cut. If I think right, and if you all do as I tell you after the cut is made, this man may get well, but I cannot tell for sure until I have made the big cut, and then, if he does not get well, and if he should die, you must not blame me. What do you say? Shall I make the big cut? A chorus of, Ugh, uh, uh, came from the patient and his numerous satellites, and the operation was duly performed. It turned out successfully, and then the little man's fame began to grow, 
It spread from the bloods to the black feet, and severe cases would go to see the Lethbridge doctor. The official medicos, be it observed, were paid liberal salaries by the Indian department, but not a cent came to Dr. Mewburn, who undertook the work, not so much for the prestige which it gave him amongst the Indians, as for the experience which he gained for the benefit of the world at large. The Indians grew to have a blind faith in him, and brought him all sorts of cases. The enormous experience thus gained begot him the subsequent reputation of the first surgeon in the West. In a few years' time, the primitive conditions under which he had been compelled to work were replaced by an up-to-date little hospital, which the late Sir Alexander Galt built and presented to the company, of which he was president. I never shall forget the night of my arrival at Lethbridge. There was only one hotel in the place, and one did not expect very much, but I sat down opposite my bed, and for at least five minutes wondered how I could put in the night. There was a clean pillowcase on the bed, but this only served to intensify the mahogany colour of the sheets. In desperation, at last I wrapped myself up in my blue cavalry cloak and was glad when morning came. The police post at that time consisted of nothing more than a number of houses dumped upon the open prairie, forming the four sides of a sufficiently capacious square, with a grand room and cells at one end and two stables, each capable of containing forty horses, at the opposite, the north end. The range cattle swarmed all over the place at their own sweet will, and at night they used to come and upset our slop barrels and pick over the contents making a horrible mess outside our back doors. As the months rolled on, we overcame these difficulties by enclosing the barrack reserve within a stout wire net fence with a top rail, and by constructing a substantial corral for the 300 tons of hay which we intended to stack in the coming season. In connection with the stables, I once had a bad scare. The commanding officer's house was the nearest to the stables and hay corral, and about eleven o'clock, when I was in my little smoking-room, I heard the stable picket vault over the lower half-doors, which were locked, and shout, Fire! Beyond a few patent extinguishers, we had in the barracks no means whatever of controlling a fire, and on this occasion I bolted out of my front door and ran like a hare into the stable, which was nearest to me. At the far end in the centre aisle, I saw the wooden floor ablaze, it was just behind the stalls of two very fine shire horses that we used for hauling water from the river. If I had not been too much preoccupied and anxious, I could have laughed at the quizzical expressions on the faces of these beautiful creatures as they looked around, as much to say, What are you doing? This is bedtime. Why don't you leave us alone? I was just in time. The fire was on the point of reaching the bedding of one of them. In lying down, the horse had pushed some of the straw beyond his stall into the aisle, and I whipped off my coat and beat it away. That was all I could do single-handed, but the danger was past. I had barely saved the situation when my next-door neighbour, Inspector Moody, ran in and helped. Then came Staff Sergeant Charles Ross, with an armful of blankets. He was on his way home, saw the flicker of light in the stable windows, and knew that there could be only one explanation thereof, and like the man he was, ran to the sergeant major's store, gathered up an armful of blankets, which were always kept handy for transients, and came to the rescue. 
In a jiffy, too, came the men from their beds with axes, etc. In almost less time than it has taken me to write these lines, a plank was chopped through and any remaining fire effectually smothered. Perhaps I should here explain the necessity for the blankets which Sergeant Ross brought. None knew better than himself that a horse will not face fire, and that in order to lead the animals out of their stalls it would be necessary to blindfold them. Happily this was not necessary, and most of the horses did not bestir themselves. All's well that ends well, but I had a bad quart d'heure while I was keeping the flames under, and while I was superintending the subsequent operations. How in hell did this thing happen? was the question running through my mind. As I subsequently learned, the stable picket had heard a horse loose in this particular stable, and, as was his duty, went in to tie him up in his stall. He had quietly coaxed the horse down to the eastern end of the stable, and just as he was about to lay hold of his halter, the brute dashed by him, kicked at the lantern which the man was carrying, and smashed it to smithereens. The lighted oil ran down between the planks, and set alight any inflammable dry rubbish that was there, and so spread. The two horses that I speak of were used for nothing but to haul our water tank, and they and the teamster, who was told off to look after them, were kept fully occupied. All water in the town had to be delivered by water cart in those days, and used to cost ten cents per barrel. The year 1888 was the first of a dry period that lasted for seven years. Dry summers and hard winters went together, and each year became a little drier than its predecessor. Farming was out of the question, even if anyone had thought of it, which no one did. That would have been far too much like work. Riding long hours after cattle or horses on the prairie was not looked upon as work. There was a story told of an old-timer in the McLeod district who would not take a contract for digging a well because he could not do it on horseback. The country was intended by Providence for stock growing, and anybody connected with stock who was worth a second glance swore tremendous oaths, wore Mexican spurs and chaps, and possibly a buckskin shirt with a fringe. I myself did a lot of work which, if it was not hard, was steady, for I determined to have a garden at all costs. Experience taught me that the only way in which the seed could be induced to germinate was to make the necessary drills, saturate them with water, then sow the seed, cover it up, and keep on watering. As I had about half an acre of garden and did the work myself, it used to keep my spare hours pretty well occupied. Now and again I used to get a prisoner out of the guard-room to help me. There was one to whom I used to give a horn of whiskey the last thing. He was the cleverest and most successful horse-thief in the country. He was a B.A. of Dublin University, and lived with a squaw on the St. Mary's River. He had a bunch of five hundred or six hundred horses running at large on the prairie, most, if not all of them, stolen, and once or twice a year he would round them up cut out some of the likely ones, and drive them across country into Manitoba, where he would sell or trade them for cattle. He had not only a merry life, but a long one, for it was years before we could get a clear case against him, and when at length he was convicted for the first time, the judge gave him only six months in the guard-room. It was during this temporary retreat that he used to learn gardening from Captain Dean, as I found he told his friends afterwards. 
and earned the little drop of oh be joyful which always sent him happy to bed poor pat as he was known did not profit by his experience for at a later date he came under the notice of chief justice a l sifton who had no sympathy with horse thieves and sent him to the manitoba penitentiary where he died <clears throat> i had no fewer than seven barrels conveniently disposed round my garden fence which the water-cart man used to keep filled from day to day and that to any one unconnected with the mounted police meant a daily expenditure of seventy cents it was no wonder that people could not afford to have gardens in those days for every little onion had an appreciable value and my old wife's principal enjoyment in life was to drive about in her phaeton with a goodly basket of vegetables and give them to her friends of cucumbers i always had an abundance and they were the first of the particular brand to be grown in that country i had almost forgotten to mention my first tree-growing experiment which turned out so unfortunately to the south and east there was for many miles nothing but a waterless wilderness with no habitation whatever and without any semblance of a tree or even bush having prison labour and water facility at command i obtained permission from the coal company to take seventy-five suitable saplings from their property in the river bottom and to transplant them on the barrack site for each tree i prepared a hole measuring roughly three feet each way and loosened up the bottom with a little rubble for the sake of drainage with the exception of about six inches of topsoil the rest was clay very hard to work which was all taken away with each tree i brought a cubic yard of the soil that it had been growing in and prior to planting the tree the hole was kept full of water with the idea of making the walls of clay more negotiable by the roots i could not foretell that we were simply wasting our time but so it turned out as each successive year became a little drier than the last so the clay subsoil became more and more impervious some of the trees lasted one year some two some three but in spite of the water that we gave them they succumbed one by one and of all the seventy-five saplings that i set out in eighteen eighty nine and nursed assiduously there is only one alive to-day it stands at the turnstile entrance to the barracks in a slight hollow where the snow gathered in the winter and the rain drained at other times and as the subsoil was thus kept moist the roots were able to take hold that experience however disheartening is one which the pioneer in a new country has to put up with. End of chapter 5